I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. Tracy B. Wilson. In the no surprise department, uh, the relationship that humans have had with bodies of water throughout history has pretty much always been one of fascination. And it seems like we have always been trying to find ways to transcend the limits of our pesky air-breathing lungs so that we can get some time underwater. Uh, you have surely heard innumerable times that approximately 70% of the Earth's surface is water, so it makes sense that curious humans would be yearning to scope out the situation in the deep. And while humans were diving on their own for centuries before they started building assistance apparatus to do so, today we're going to talk a little bit just about the history of the technology specifically that's evolved over the centuries to give us some face time with the fish without suffocating. Uh, we're going to cover inventions designed specifically to enable humans to breathe underwater. While there are plenty of other advancements to diving, like fins and wetsuits, etc., we're pretty much focusing on the air here and like things that have enabled us to breathe. Uh, and as a heads up going into this one, in case you are a, a real uh, dive historian, I want to be clear that this is by no means an exhaustive history on the matter. If you go to any, like, even diving fan site and see, like, their discussion of dive history, there is usually a list roughly one kilometer long of, like, various advancements that have been made through the years. And so we can't really cover all of those without just reading a long list, which would be boring. 
Uh, because it has developed incrementally over centuries, and it includes the work of just multitudes. So there's no way to include every single step in the course of one of our podcasts. So we're hitting as many of the key historical moments as possible. The first recorded account of some kind of diving technology that was designed to let humans breathe underwater was mentioned by Aristotle in the 4th century BCE in his Book of Problems. I love that name. Uh, this was a diving bell. And Aristotle des- described diving bells by saying, quote, they enable the divers to respire equally well by letting down a cauldron. For this does not fill with water, but retains the air, for it is forced straight down into the water. If you're having trouble vis- visualizing that, it's like when you're a kid and you're putting the cup down in the sink, but in a way that's a vacuum so that you don't, or it's not a vacuum, it wasn't, doesn't let the water in. You know what I'm trying to say. So as a note, there is some debate about whether Aristotle actually wrote the Book of Problems. So take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, that's one of those many historical documents that people, uh, some people anyway, believe actually was written by someone later and then attributed to Aristotle. So also in the late 4th century BCE, Macedonian king Alexander the Great is on record as having employed a diving bell to explore the seas. That was beginning as early as age 11, according to this uh, sort of legend. So during the Battle of Tyre, he is said to have used a diving bell to supervise the work of divers that were under his command and were tasked with removing obstacles that would prevent passage into port. And once again, there is some debate about the truthfulness of that account. But there are, if you are a lover of visual mediums, some truly spectacular renderings of Alexander the Great submerged in a glass bell and observing the world from his underwater vantage. Some of them almost look creepy. There's one that I ran across where it looks like he is kind of... um creeping on some lovers in a boat on the surface of the water. (laughs) What? Uh, And there are others that just sort of look like him merrily sitting in his diving bell, kind of enjoying his view of the world from there. I'll see if I can find some pictures of this to put in our show notes. Uh, A most basic and classic example of a diving bell is narrow at the top and open at the bottom. So bell-shaped, like its name describes As you push the bell straight down into the water, the air is trapped inside of it. So there's basically a bubble inside there in which a human can breathe. It's fine for a limited time before the oxygen is basically used up and then you have to come back to the surface. And in order for a diving bell to counteract the buoyancy created by that air pocket that enables breathing, it also has to be quite heavy. So an open bottom diving bell also can't go very deep into water. There's a Peruvian vase dating back to around the year 200 that depicts a human figure. And on that that figure's face is painted something that's been interpreted to signify goggles. The goggle interpretation uh, was arrived at due to the fact that this figure is also holding fish in each of his hands. Yeah, so (laughs) it's a pretty cute little vase. Um, So then the next, one of the next sort of major steps of where we see some sort of diving event happening in history uh, is around 1500, Leonardo da Vinci was sketching out ideas for what appeared to be diving apparatus, uh, but it seems that he never actually built one. Despite accounts going centuries back in the historical record, it wasn't until the 16th century that a successful diving bell submersion was conclusively documented. 
In the 1530s, Italy's Lake Nimi was explored in a diving bell designed by Guglielmo de Lorena as part of an operation to salvage barges that dated back to the time of Caligula. And in a write-up in Scientific American that was done in 1909, there was an account of this 1535 Lake Nemi dive, uh, and it describes the apparatus in the following way. Master Guglielmo de Lorena made a contrivance by which he entered the water and made himself descend to the bottom of the lake. And there he remained an hour, more or less, just as he wished, until the cold drove him up again. With this contrivance of his, one can work, sawing, cutting, corking up, tying ropes. One can also operate with hammers, chisels, pinchers, and other such tools, though one can use but little force because of the hindrance of the water. So apparently this version of a diving bell left the wearer with a lot of range of motion. So it suggested that it was smaller, a personal-sized diving bell, rather than one that could potentially accommodate multiple people inside of it or more thoroughly cover the diver's body. There's also a Chinese text that was written in 1587 entitled The Exploitation of the Works of Nature. And this featured some interesting illustrations of people that are walking on the seafloor and they're tethered by ropes to ships above. And they have tubes that are basically going from their mouths all the way up to the surface, presumably to breathe through. I keep thinking about these books that I love by this woman named Marie Brennan, and they're called The Natural History of Dragons. And they're kind of like a faux regency feeling fantasy series about this this widowed lady who studies dragons. And there's a whole arc involving another guy that's doing research in a diving bell and how heavy the bell is and how cumbersome and how tricky it is to get it in and out and how much it weighs in the ship and what an inconvenience that causes. Uh, that's what I've been thinking about the whole time we've been talking yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, like, we talk about it, and yes, they dropped it in the water, but, like, if it tipped at all yeah. to, to one side, they basically had to pull the whole incredibly heavy thing up and start over. So before we get to an advancement in this technology that was made by a name very familiar to the podcast, let's pause for a word from one of our fabulous sponsors. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. 
about $6 million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So to get back to the story of diving technology, in our recent episode on Sir Isaac Newton, we mentioned Sir Edmund Halley. And it turns out that Halley also figures into the human desire to explore underwater. In 1691, Halley completely changed things by adding a system that could replenish the air in the diving bell. It's almost always the case in the world of invention, however. He was likely aware of and building on the work of Denis Papin, who in 1689 came up with a plan to pump fresh air into the diving bell. Remember how we said before the break that he would run out of oxygen, so this would get fresh air in there. Yep, and we've talked many times about how most big breakthroughs in science and technology are building on the work of others, so this is a very similar situation. And Pepin's proposed method featured the use of a bellows system that would pump air into a bell at a constant pressure. But when Halley devised his system, he used a different method, uh, likely to differentiate himself from Pepin and avoid any claims of plagiarism. Halley's diving bell was made of wood and coated with lead. It covered 60 cubic feet, so that's 1.7 cubic meters of volume. And it had a glass top so that divers would have light while they were in there. There was also a valve on the bell attached to a barrel that could supply additional air. 
And the barrel was suspended in the water by a rope, and it could be pulled up to the surface so they could refill it with fresh air and then drop it back into the water, sinking thanks to a weighted bottom. And Halley's design was the first that enabled the equalization of pressure inside the bell and outside the bell because of the valve system that was used to supply this air. And it's sometimes even referred to as the precursor to the modern diving bell because of this. Halley also invented a smaller bell-shaped apparatus that could be worn like a helmet, although its intent was for the diver to be able to sort of get out from the diving bell, not to be a separate means to go underwater independently. And in a section of Halley's 1714 to 1716 work titled Philosophical Transactions, there is a section that is called, it's a long title, The Art of Living Underwater, or a discourse concerning the means of furnishing air to the bottom of the sea in any ordinary depths. And in this section of this work, he detailed the data that he actually gathered over years of experimenting with diving bells, and he explains how his particular technology works. One thing he mentions in this writing is the information gleaned from his testing that a gallon of air is used up and no longer suitable for respiration after about a minute. And, quote, though its elasticity be but little altered, yet in passing the lungs, it loses its vivifying spirit. Just kind of a poetic way to describe stale air. Don't keep breathing that. You're going to pass out. (laughs) Yeah, it's not going to work out well. In 1788, there was another major advancement in diving technology, and this was made by John Smeaton when he invented the diving air pump. And Smeaton's pump required four men to operate it. They were up on the surface, and it ran air through lines that attached to the top of the bell. And Smeaton's pump more closely resembled the concepts that were... uh, a big part of Denis Papin's work than the way that Halley eventually set up the air supply. And this English engineer also redesigned the bell itself into a box shape, and he christened his a diving box, or rather a diving chest, rather than a diving bell. One thing we should mention here, and it really goes for advancement in any field, is that none of these new technologies were instantly adopted. In fact, even though Smeaton's pumps really advanced the field of diving, Halley's diving bells stayed in use until the 1800s. An English inventor named William James uh, designed a suit in 1825 that had a coil of metal tubing that wrapped around the diver's weight. And the idea was that air that was pumped into this tubing uh, while they were on the surface, could provide a diver with an hour's worth of underwater time. Although there is no clear evidence, like we don't have a, a data write up the way that Halley did some of his, that this suit was ever actually tested. The following decade, inventor Augustus Ziebe invented what's considered to be the first diving dress. It's designed built on the work of John and Charles Dean, who had invented a smoke apparatus to enable firemen to breathe and move freely in burning buildings. The deans also adapted their invention into a diving helmet designed to sit on the diver's shoulders that would be fastened there with straps to a waist belt. The dean's patent diving dress was completed in 1828. It was a good functioning design, but if the diver couldn't stay upright underwater, the helmet would fill with water. As an aside, John and Charles Dean also published what is believed to be the first diving manual in 1836. Augustus Ziba's design, which came out in 1839, sealed the helmet to a diving suit to eliminate the problem of water rushing in if the diver tipped over or fell. Yeah, and keeping in mind that when you're walking, if you've ever walked underwater, you know that the seafloor is not exactly the most stable and constant of situations to be uh, stepping on. So it was a very real possibility that divers would 
shift side to side or lose their balance. In 1860, the French team of Benoit Rouquayrol and Auguste Dunerus came up with a suit design that featured a compressed air reservoir in addition to an air supply line. And the idea was that for brief jaunts, the diver could actually disconnect himself from that regular supply line and rely solely on the compressed air reservoir that he carried on his back. If you've ever seen the original illustrations for Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the dive helmet in them was based on these men's design. In 1878, a man named Henry Fluss ushered in a new era of diving technology when he patented a self-contained underwater breathing unit. Fluss's rebreather included a rubber mask. It is super creepy looking if you see pictures of it. Uh, a breathing bag and a copper oxygen tank and a scrubber that would clean and refresh the air. The Fluss system was closed. So the used air was run through a length of rope yarn that had been soaked in caustic potash, which is also known as potassium hydroxide, to remove the carbon dioxide and make the air breathable again. Uh, a captain in the French Navy named Yves Le Prieur paid a visit to an industrial expo at Paris's Grand Palais in 1925. And this was a pivotal moment because he saw a diver in a demonstration there. And while this diver was showing off a torch that could cut iron underwater, that was not what fascinated uh, Prieur. He was, in fact, drawn to the man's breathing apparatus. And this was simply a rubber tube that was held in the diver's mouth, and it ran up to the surface and connected to a pump outside the water. And he also wore goggles on his eyes and a rubber clip on his nose. That particular piece of diving technology was invented in the 19-teens by a man named Maurice Fernez. And it's unusual because it let the diver wear a simple bathing suit and experience some freedom of movement. All of the other diving setups that uh, Yves Le Prieur had seen up to that point in his Navy career had been these really heavy helmets and these lead-soled boots that would really hinder your ability to move around. You would have minimal functions under the water. But even with the Expo Tank Diver's incredible ability to move however he wished, he was still tethered by that hose to his air supply. And so Prieur was inspired to combine that freedom that he noticed uh, from the heavy helmet and boots with a way to carry air independent, completely independent of a supply line. But first, he very politely contacted Maurice Fernet, the inventor of the system that he had that he had seen at the Grand Palais demonstration, and he asked for permission to use that system as a starting point for his own idea. And so once he got that permission, he devised a system that had a mouthpiece that attached to a bottle of compressed air, which was a Michelin invention designed to inflate car tires. Yeah, I love this story because I love that, one, he got permission from another inventor to kind of take off on his ideas. And two, that he was so uh, resourceful and ingenious that he adapted a, a, a tire inflation system to use as like the air supply for divers. And uh, Yves Le Prieur further refined the design until he was confident enough to debut it publicly. And he again, credited his predecessor, it was known as the Fernet Le Prieur device. It still had the mouthpiece and the compressed air, but he had also added these leather straps that kept the air canister on the diver's back. Eventually, Le Prieur moved the canister around the chest so that it wouldn't bang into things without people knowing about it, as anyone who has ever walked behind anyone at a convention wearing fairy wings can attest to be important. 
1933, Lapierre presented this new version of his apparatus under his name exclusively, rather than the hyphenated name that his previous work had had before. And next up, a very, very famous name enters the picture and one that is quite dear to me personally. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to pause for a word from one of our sponsors. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth 
issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So jumping back to diving technology, uh, Yves Le Prieur continued to refine his underwater breathing devices. And then in June of 1939, he had a visit from a naval lieutenant named Jacques Cousteau. And the two men shared not only a naval background, but also just a love of diving, and they really hit it off. Several years later, in 1942, Cousteau once again visited Le Prieur, this time with his wife, Simone, and fellow diver Frédéric Dubac. Cousteau had been working on a diving device of his own and showed it to Le Prieur. The elder diver offered, offered him some feedback, suggesting that Cousteau alter the face mask design specifically. Cousteau's version at the time only had a breathing hose to the mouth, but Laprier thought the design would be safer if the mask covered the wearer's entire face. Yeah, Prier, we had talked about him having a, a tube to the mouth, but it really did have like a uh, this funky little apparatus around your face. So it was really, really secure. And he felt like Cousteau's might be a little unsafe because it wasn't quite as anchored around the whole head. Uh, and Jacques Cousteau partnered shortly thereafter with Emile Gagnon, who was a senior engineer at a company called Air Liquide that manufactured industrial gases. And Cousteau's father-in-law, who also worked for Air Liquide, arranged this introduction of Cousteau and Gagnon. And when Cousteau and this man met, the engineer had actually been working on a valve system already that would enable cars to use natural gas instead of petrol. So once again, there's some borrowing from the automotive industry. Jacques needed a similar valve for his diving design, but one that would carry compressed air to the diver's lungs through a breathing tube. And Gagnon designed a valve that allowed the diver to control the flow of air by only delivering a stream of it when the mouthpiece that contained the valve was sucked on. This design reduced the pressure of the air so that the intake would be suitable for a human. And then a rubber membrane released the air when the diver sucked in. And after months of testing, Cousteau and Gagnon named their device the Aqualung and began to market it. And Le Prieur's system, which had a continuous airflow system, was quickly dropped in favor of the Cousteau-Gagnon setup and its demand valve. The Aqualung was offered commercially in France in 1946, and then in Great Britain in 1950, in Canada in 1951, and in the United States in 1952. It became the first commercially successful scuba device. Le Prieur harbored some concerns about the demand valve that Cousteau and his partner had worked on. He was really concerned that if a diver lost consciousness underwater, he would drown because, again, the diver had to suck on that little valve to get the airflow, whereas Le Prieur's full face mask had this continuous flow. So it meant that even if a diver passed out, the mask wouldn't fall out and they would still be getting an oxygen supply. Just the same, Le Prieur adapted his own system to offer diver-regulated airflow. It was too late. Cousteau's system became the standard, and the two former Navy men who had once gotten along so beautifully wound up losing touch because Cousteau became famous both for his dive equipment and for his underwater films. Uh, and we should also point out 
that depending on which dive historian you ask, or just dive uh, aficionado, the person actually credited as the first scuba diver differs. Uh, the word, which actually stands for self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, was not actually coined until the 1950s. Uh, and that was when Christian James Lamberston came up with a new name for the rebreather system that he had been working on for the U.S. Navy during World War II. Just the same, the name uh, has been retroactively applied to numerous systems, and it is often associated with and sometimes accidentally credited to Cousteau. So if you're interested in learning more about the various people who have been called the first scuba diver, go to our parent site, HowStuffWorks.com, and perform a search for the word scuba. And one of the articles that will come up is called Who Was the First Scuba Diver? And it was written by Chuck of Stuff You Should Know. Yeah. And so once Cousteau's system was developed, we were pretty much solid in terms of, as as Tracy mentioned, it, it just commercially took off like wildfire. And there have been a lot of um, tweaks since then, but it's still basically the same concept. Have you have you ever been scuba, scuba diving? No, I can't pass the swim test. You, oh, I never have either. I've, I've been snorkeling, but not scuba, scuba diving. Ditto. And snorkeling is even not so great a situation for me. I'm I'm that person that always dunks underwater and just munges the whole thing up like an idiot. Yeah. I I'm not agreeing with that statement, but I <laughs> I just have never learned. Um, and it's one of those things where most of the times that I could maybe learn are times that I am on vacation and want to do something else. Yeah, I um. You know, have volunteered at places where having a dive certification would have been super handy, but I uh, I didn't do it because I'm not a strong swimmer. I cannot pass that test. <laughs> it reminds me about when my mother learned life saving as a teen. Uh huh. She passed her life saving exam, but was politely told that she might be better off not trying to save a drowning a drowning person. Oh. <laughs> do you have listener mail? I do indeed. It is from our listener, Ben. He's not the only person that wrote us about this, but I'm going to read his. Uh, hi, Holly and Tracy. First of all, thank you so much for the podcast. It really does brighten my day when a new show pops up on my phone. Hooray. I thought I'd fill in. Uh, I thought I'd write in to fill in one of the blanks on your recent Isaac Newton episode. I thought this would be a good pairing since Sir Edmund Halley makes appearances uh, in both. In that episode, he says you weren't quite sure why Leibniz or uh, we have gotten a note that some people pronounce it Leibniz. Yeah. We got a lot of other uh, emails about that that didn't mention it, so I we haven't really checked yet. It literally just came yeah. in just now. Yeah, so I uh, I am not sure on which is right, but I wanted to acknowledge that that may not be the correct pronunciation. Uh, but he, we had been wondering why he had waited so long to in- claim that he had invented calculus. So Ben is a good man. He says, I was intrigued by this question, and I set out on a knowledge quest at my girlfriend's university's library to find some answers. I tracked down a wonderful book, Philosophers at War, by Alfred Rupert Hall, which, aside from having a detailed account of the Newton-Leibniz controversy, was also filled with some wonderfully snarky commentary written in the margins by a student from the 1980s. That is, to me, one of the great joys of library books, but... That's an aside. Uh, according to Hall, Ben says, Leibniz was pushed to claim invention of calculus in 1705 when Newton published a tract called On the Quadrature of Curves. And Leibniz got a little bit spooked by this article because Newton had never fully published his method of calculus before, which he called fluxions. He published snippets of it in geometrical form in Principia. That's another one we may or may not be pronouncing exactly correctly. Uh, and he described it in 
partiality in correspondence, but this is the first time he'd publicly disclosed his full algebraic method. Hall suggests that it wasn't until Quadrature was published that Leibniz realized the total similarity between Newton's fluxions and his own differential calculus. Before this, he probably thought Newton's work was just a series of ad hoc mathematical devices. Once Leibniz realized that Newton was claiming invention of something so incredibly similar to his own calculus, he was obviously unhappy. In the next year, 1706, Leibniz wrote an anonymous review of quadrature in which he claims he invented it first and the whole who invented calculus hoopla only grew from there. Uh, that's spectacular. And he also, uh, wrote, uh, he also attached pictures of some of the snarky comments, which was very sweet and so entertaining. So I appreciate it. Cheers, Ben. Ben, thank you so much. That was awesome. I um that's one of those deep dives that you like to get into when you're doing research on like a podcast episode, but sometimes uh eventually the clock has ticked by mm-hmm. and you run out of time to go down every avenue. So I'm glad we finally have some closure on why that <laughs> happened. Uh if you would like to write us, you could do so at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook.com slash missed in history on Twitter at missed in history and Pinterest.com slash missed in history at missed in history.tumblr.com and we're on Instagram at missed in history. Uh, if you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, we mentioned it already in the episode, but if you go to our parent site, How Stuff Works, type in the word scuba or diving in the search bar, you're going to get a lot of content. And there are actually a few different articles written by Chuck from Stuff You Should Know a while back when he was regularly writing articles uh, that are fantastic and just a wealth of other delightful things. So you can do that. You can visit us at mistinhistory.com for an archive of all past episodes of the podcast as well as show notes on any of them that Tracy and I have done together and the occasional other blog post or goodie. And there's always, you know, usually some pictures attached to episode pages, which is kind of fun for some people. So we encourage you to visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Elevate your summer with Osea's best-selling body care set. It's everything you need for radiant summer skin on the go. Featuring travel sizes of Osea's clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral skincare, like their best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Right now, you can get the best-seller's body care set, a $78 value, 33% off. And use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at oceamalibu.com code SUMMER. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.